Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, and welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. I've been imploring those of you who are listening on Apple devices to leave us a star rating or a comment uh, in the iTunes or Podcasts app because all of that helps with exposure and expanding listenership. And I just want to say thank you for those of you who did that in the last week. I noticed an uptick in star ratings, a lot of five-star ratings, which was great. I really appreciate it. And there were a couple of comments in there, one from Dirk Phoenix and one from Crazy Guy that were really nice and and said some some really positive things about the show. Show. And so that meant a lot to me. And I, I do want to let you guys know that I read all of those. I see them. And so they do mean something if you take the time to type out a review or leave a star rating. It all helps because this is a podcast that I that I do for fun. I don't make money off of this. It's just something that I enjoy doing. I like learning about the game and talking to these guys and picking their brains. And from hearing from you guys, it sounds like you're enjoying listening as well and, and learning about football and, and deepening your knowledge of the NFL. So I just want to say thank you for those of you who are listening and continuing to share this podcast with your friends and family. The listenership is is slowly rising, steadily rising, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I think you guys will like today's episode. My guest is former Cincinnati Bengals head coach Marvin Lewis. Marvin is a guy who was in charge of the Bengals from 2003 to 2018, went to the playoffs seven times, was the AP Coach of the Year in 2009, and he's a guy that is now working as co-defensive coordinator at Arizona State. He shares that responsibility with former Giants middle linebacker Antonio Pierce, and they work under former Jets head coach Herman Edwards. In addition to the Cincinnati Bengals and Arizona State, he also spent one season as assistant head coach and defensive coordinator for the Washington Redskins in 2002, working backwards through his resume. And prior to that was really kind of like the coming out party, if you will, for Marvin Lewis when he was in charge of the Baltimore Ravens defense from 1996 to 2001, winning a Super Bowl there and coordinating a defense that was arguably the best in NFL history, allowed the fewest points in a season, allowed the fewest rushing yards in a season, forced 49 turnovers that year, you know, with guys like Ray Lewis and Rod Woodson and Peter Boulware and Chris McAllister and Tony Saragusa, just tremendous players top to bottom, and that was Marvin's defense. He was the defensive coordinator there. He broke into the league with the Pittsburgh Steelers as the linebackers coach from 1993, excuse me, 1992 to 1995, working under Bill Cowher. They went to the Super Bowl there in his final season in 95 and lost to the Cowboys, and that's why he was so satisfied to have that redemptive moment with the Ravens a few years later, you know, winning one Super Bowl and losing one Super Bowl. And so I really think you guys are going to enjoy this show. Marvin had a lot of good anecdotes about what it's like to be a head coach, building a staff, working with players, mentoring guys, and, and how you accumulate that knowledge as you work your way up through the ranks and then apply it when you're a head coach. So without further ado, here is a conversation with Marvin Lewis. Well, Marvin, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. I know you guys are very busy out there at Arizona State, continuing to run the program and hopefully preparing for a season later this year if everything goes well and, and life can sort of get back to some semblancy of normal here during COVID-19. But I got to ask you, during this interim period, what has it been like to coach and recruit and work with players and work with staff members at a time when everybody is staying at home and everyone has to rely on Zoom meetings? Well, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's new territory for everyone, but I think our guys have done a really good job. They had laid a, a real good foundation in January as far as the recruiting for, for 2021 and 22. So uh, we've been able to continue on that path. 
uh, as much as possible. We were very fortunate that we got uh, seven practices in uh, with our players, so we've been able to go back and review those uh, virtually through the different uh, uh, meeting formats that we've used and uh, and a chance uh, to go back in and kind of hone on and, and lay the foundation uh, for our offense and defense for, for the 2020 season. What has it been like to jump back into the college ranks? Of course, you began your career, you know, coaching at that level after playing at that level as well. And, and now you get a chance to not only work back in the college game, but also on a staff that has so much so much NFL experience up and down the roster, whether it's you or Herm or Antonio or Sean Slocum or Kevin Mawai, there's guys up and down that roster. So what is it like to have kind of that NFL feel in college? Well, it's been, it's good. Uh, that's really the, uh, I guess the, uh, the format and uh, the, the part of the program here is, is to really be able to train uh, these players to recruit them, uh, the caliber of player that you can recruit to Arizona State and the opportunity they have of getting a great education and then uh, be talented enough to have the opportunity to go play in the National Football League uh, when they're done here. So that's part of the plan, the vision of of, of Coach Edwards and and Athletic Director Ray Anderson. And that was my role a year ago is to continue to try to aid uh, the coaches and supporting them and, and the players in that process and now kind of uh, taking over this for this season as defensive coordinator and installing the defense. It's been fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be out there at practice. Uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, last season I missed coaching. Um, you know, you don't know until you don't have it. Right. And not being able to coach on the field last year, I really did miss coaching. When, when we talk to players and coaches in the NFL, a lot of them discuss how big of a jump it is coming from college to, to the NFL in terms of X's and O's and schematics because in college you have such a constrained and finite amount of time to work with these guys, whereas in the NFL it's obviously their 9 to 5 and sometimes you know beyond 9 to 5 job. And so I'm curious, when you kind of make that reverse jump and go back to college, how much did you have to pare down or scale back schematically in terms of what you wanted to do just to work with a different level of player. Yeah, it was beneficial being here last season and seeing uh, how, how things were done. Uh, I think that would have been very difficult had I not. And uh, you do. You're, you're very limited on time in college football. Uh, you can see why the programs that are perennially successful at the top, why they are, uh, they they're able to do that and and balance that and judge that they've done a nice job of that so and uh, and you must you know we really have to be fundamentally sound and do the things we do well and uh, and really be able to go out and apply it to the opponent and you're really trying to teach the guys to do it that way. What do you remember about your own jump into the NFL as a coach? You know, coming from Idaho State, you then coached at three other programs after that before making the jump into the, the NFL as an assistant with the Pittsburgh Steelers. You get there at the same time Bill Cower does in his first season. So what was it like to make that jump and, and sort of what was your, your big break to get into the NFL for the first time? Well, I think the biggest thing was, well, you know, I guess the, the association is Bill and I played high school football. Uh, in the same conference, and we met at a football camp uh, probably back in 1973. Wow. Uh, 73, wow. Summer of 73, so uh, the meeting Bill, and uh, and then later on, obviously, he goes on to North Carolina State uh, and then gets in the NFL and ironically uh, ends up coaching for Marty Schottenheimer, playing for Marty, and Marty hires him as a coach, 
uh, who I grew up in the same town with Marty. So I had that association all the time uh, in my background. And so it was kind of the opportunity to to know both people. And uh, I got into coaching and when I would come home for uh, Christmas break, if it weren't for for the the Rooney family with the Steelers and Tony Dungy and Tom Moore and Dick Haley that would take care of me there in Pittsburgh, as well as Coach Schottenheimer and his staff, uh, and with the Browns, which Bill was on, and and Marty's brother Kurt, and I would watch tape and spend time learning from those guys as much as I could. Uh, every break I got, and every opportunity I got to come home. You know that first staff that you were part of in Pittsburgh was was pretty special because there was such a heavy defensive flavor on the staff, and then also just a group of guys that went on to have a lot of individual success as head coaches in their own right later in their careers. Obviously, Bill stayed in Pittsburgh and won a Super Bowl, but then Dom Capers is the defensive coordinator who went on to be a head coach multiple times. You know, you had experience there, and then you know, of course, spent so much time as head coach of the Bengals, and then Dick LeBeau as well on the back end. What was it like to be part of that group? and learn sort of the zone blitz and fire zone and all that stuff that was kind of, you know, in vogue and taking the league by storm at that time? Yeah, it really was. Uh, I was blessed. Uh, you know, I can literally remember I was coaching at University of Pittsburgh and uh, and I got the opportunity when Bill became the head coach and actually two opportunities in the NFL at that point, one with George Seifert and the 49ers and one with Bill there in Pittsburgh. And, and so obviously I chose to stay stay in Pittsburgh and stay home and was great for our my kids and, and family to to be to be again around their grandparents for another four seasons there with Bill, uh, but it was it was tremendous. Uh, you know, first time I remember telling my mother when I we go to the combine, and uh, and I'm coaching with Steve Furness, who I remember when he played for the Steelers is yep. kind of the fifth guy in that front four, and then I had I remember telling my parents that uh, I'm gonna be coaching with Dick LeBeau, and I had Dick's trading card. So That's awesome. it was really pretty cool with, with Dick and then Dom Capers and obviously um, the knowledge and everything that I was able to take uh, from those men and, and, and use in my career. So I was blessed to be part of that staff. I had Dave McGinnis on one of the earlier podcasts, and he broke into the league with the Bears you know, in the mid-'80s, and the very first player he ever coached as linebackers coach in the NFL was Mike Singletary. And so you had the opportunity in 92, 93, and then onward to coach guys like Kevin Green, to coach guys like Greg Lloyd, guys that were perennial pro bowlers, perennial all-pros. What was that like being a young coach working with guys that were already at the top of their game and, and at the highest level of the league? Well, they called me college coach, and uh, you know they they uh, uh, they took took me through my paces every single day. I will tell you, uh, the first training camp because Hardy Nickerson was still there as part of it. Hardy leaving then uh, after the '92 season to be part of the first free agency period, uh, but every single day uh, they took me to, to my paces. Uh, Brian Hinkle, I think I was 32 or 33, and I was a year older at the time, uh, was one of the linebackers as well. And uh, Greg had really never been a starting player. And and so uh, it was challenging because every day, uh, you know, and I finally had to say, look, I may be young, uh, but I've been in coaching for a while, and I wasn't born last night. So (laughs) how about we get on the same page and get this stuff done? And I can remember that we go through the preseason and every day, every practice and training camp, uh, every day, uh, there was just something else. And <laughs> I remember uh, 
uh, Bill uh, coming up to me and jumping me about something at, at lunch about why are we doing this, and I and <laughs> and, uh, and I walked away, went into my room, and slammed the door, and the door slammed. Bill came, he came knocking on the door. He said, "Hey, did you slam the door?" I said, oh, "I must have been just the wind, coach." <laughs> and uh, but. You know, from from those guys and Bill, because Bill called it the the hand and glove theory of coaching. I was going to be an extension of him uh, all the time, but uh, but it was great. Uh, those guys and what great players they were. And then as soon as the season rolled around, it was like romper room was over, and now let's pay attention to what we need to get done. Yeah, and, uh, so and, it was great. And and that group I think was was pretty remarkable in that you know you have a, a group of you know a lot of young coaches you know some veterans as well but then you have Bill who's a, a first time head coach and in the first four years there you guys go eleven and five nine and seven twelve and four and eleven and five so what was it about that group not only just the coaches but the players as well that allowed you to have instant success and then also relatively sustained success too because you know it wasn't until ninety five that you guys reached the Super Bowl but you were winning every season. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously Coach Noel had left a great foundation of toughness and discipline, and those guys, would, when when they, you drop the hat, they would hit you in the mouth. And Bill was able to pull that out of them, uh, the rest of it out of them, and, and really teach them uh, how to be pros. And one of the biggest things Bill always said was, how does he know? Bill, having been an ex-player, he always wanted to know how the player knew what to do, and that was the challenge all the time. It was one of the best things I ever uh, took from Bill is that the, it's not what we know, it's how the player knows and how he knows how to execute it. And he really, uh, uh, that was something that was, was, was always innate in, in everything we did there. And then between with Ron Earhart, who was really a great, um, uh, what I want to say, uh, sounding board for Bill, uh, we've had great experiences around the league, Dick Hope, the running back coach. Uh, Kent Stevenson, the offensive line, and so forth. There's really a lot of, of experience there, and, and Dom and all of his experience, and obviously Dick LeBeau and all of his experience. So uh, the staff was pretty special that way and, and really uh, uh, helped me learn how uh, to uh, coach on the professional level. So in 94, you guys reach the AFC title game, and then in 95, you do one better, and you get to the Super Bowl where you play the Cowboys. And, and one of the questions I always like to ask guys is, what was their emotion like when they get to a Super Bowl, when you get to the site where the game is being played? And in this case now, ironically, Sun Devil Stadium, where you know you now get to work again. But you know, Sun Devil Stadium, that first Super Bowl for you in 96, you guys face the Cowboys, that loaded Cowboys team with Larry Allen and Michael Irvin, Troy Aiken. Emmett Smith, Daryl Johnston, and all that talent they had. Believe it or not, you guys were 13 and a half point underdogs. So, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's it like to get ready for that game? Well, I don't know that we knew we were underdogs. <laughs> uh, we had played the Cowboys, I think, two years previous to that, uh, early in the season, and uh, you know, always uh, had lost to them. I think at home uh, in a close football game. So, I don't know that we ever. Our guys thought they were underdogs at all, but they did. They were loaded on offense with Novacek as well, who you didn't yep. mention at tight end. So they really had they, – they put you through your, their, your your paces on offense all the time. But, you know, having been so close, like you mentioned, in, in 92, I think having the first or second best record in the AFC and getting knocked out in the second round, and then to get to the second round in, in 93 
losing the championship game in 94 to finally get there in 95, I think it was a relief for everyone because uh, the guys each and every year, it's tough uh, to mount back up and get to that point. That's why I always, right. when people said, oh, the Bills, you know, the Bills to get to the Super Bowl like they did that many times. I mean, we know how difficult that is anytime you're in as a professional in coaching or playing. You know how difficult it is to get to that point and how many things have to bounce your way and go right to get to that point. Yeah, and, and that game in particular was, was interesting. I was reading the Ultimate Super Bowl book by my former colleague Bob McGinn, uh, who I covered the Packers with in Green Bay, and there's a quote from Dave Campo, who was the D.C. of the Cowboys, that I want to read to you uh, at, from that period of time, and he said, uh, quote, Fritz Shermer in Green Bay and Dick LeBeau in Pittsburgh were the zone blitz guys. We had not been a big zone pressure team. And he's talking about the Cowboys. And he says, so during the year, I took off all of their zone blitzes and we started running some of them. In the playoffs, we unleashed the zone blitzes, especially in that Pittsburgh game. In a lot of ways, we used Dick's own stuff against them. We felt that their quarterback, Neil O'Donnell, did a great job all year, but he was not as great under pressure. The zone blitzes were a big factor in that game. So I don't bring that up to ask specifically about his game plan, but more so generically the concept of a copycat league. What is it like to see teams pick up things that you do and adapt things that you do, just as you do from others, but to see it used against you? What is that feeling like? Well, I, I think it was, you know, obviously uh, you're right. The coaches are, are always going to study and learn uh, from other coaches if they're worth their salt. And uh, the, the, the innovativeness of, of what Dick had kind of created back with the Bengals in Cincinnati and David Fulcher, and then to propose those things to Dom and Bill and us to be able to expand upon, expand upon it each and every week uh, was tremendous and, and flattering for those guys. Uh, and, and me who sat in the room uh, from the from the orientation and ground up from it, you know, uh, as we began to build those things and build the rules for the coverage part of it and the linebackers and so forth, because our whole key was to try to get the linebacker at minimum a no t- uh, or at minimum on the on the running back and then, and then sometimes a no touch, and so that was what the zone blitz theory was was based upon. Yeah, and, and that game in particular, that Super Bowl, it ended up being a win for the Cowboys, 27-17. But it was, it was kind of unique in that the defense, you guys' defense, really played their tails off. And if it wasn't for you know maybe a couple untimely turnovers on offense that created some short fields, it might have been very different. And, and there was a quote from Dick LeBeau saying, you know, we didn't have a weakness on that defense. We won everything but the score. That's all you're going to remember. But as a defensive coach, you don't have any problems remembering holding those guys to 254 yards. And so how did you kind of feel about that game and, and that performance, given that your side of the ball had, had really played their tails off? It just it just didn't come out your way on the scoreboard. Yeah, we did play well, but we gave up a touchdown. As I remember down on the goal line where, where Troy had made a great throw, Johnson made a great catch, and, and Greg was hanging all over him. And, uh, you know, those are the things, unfortunately, we remember the plays that we don't make and, and kind of, you know, was part of the difference in the football game. But, uh, uh, you know, our guys did play well. And, uh, you know, the thing about the Super Bowl uh, that I remember is <laughs> I think we had Cool and the, the gang was the band after the game. Okay. And uh, it didn't matter how good they sounded, but 40 or six years later, whatever it was in, in uh, Tampa with the, the Ravens, when we won the Super Bowl, we could have had whatever we had was the band, and they sure sound a lot better. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that, that for sure. Guys, 
drum and bugle corps because when you lose, it's still, you still fall off that cliff when you don't win. Did you have and, a uh, – oh, I'm sorry. That, go ahead. No, I just – in the, the, the cliff, the longer you go, the higher it gets. Yeah, I can. I mean, I remember, you know, talking to guys that have either won and lost a Super Bowl, and there's kind of a, a hangover in in both dimensions. You know, whether you win or lose, but certainly being on the the losing side is a bit tougher. And, and fortunately, as you mentioned, you had that opportunity with Baltimore a few years later to redeem yourself. And we'll get that we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to ask you: Did you have a sense at that point in time that you were being considered or ready for or in the hunt for coordinator jobs after you know a handful of really successful seasons in Pittsburgh? Well, I, I uh, uh, ironically, yeah, when Coach uh, when Tony Dungy was going to become the coach of the Bucks, he had reached out, uh, you know, possibly for the opportunity there with him, and uh, we had discussed it a, a couple times, and and then uh, he ended up being able to get Monty Kiffin out of his contract and hire Monty. Uh, so uh, I did have you know a, a couple you know these opportunities that came from you know. I guess just being there in Pittsburgh with with everybody. And one of my favorite coaches to ask guys is when they do get to lead an offense or a defense for the first time and they get to install it their way and build game plans of their own mindset. What were some of the things that you thought about or elements that you wanted to put together when you get to Baltimore in 96 and you're the defensive coordinator for the first time in your career? Well, it was, uh, <laughs> was a lot more than I knew. We always think we're ready, and we learned so much that first year, uh, so much that uh, I literally called uh, after the season, called Coach Dungy and asked if I could come over to Indianapolis, and he would spend some time with me early on uh, to to help me with that, as well as uh, Ray Rhodes, and uh, so uh, you know, it uh, it was it was different. It was more than I you know knew. There was a lot uh, you know that. You know, you think you're ready and so forth, but uh, you know, you, you really still uh, learning, still still learning from others quite a bit. I remember when I was in Green Bay covering the Packers, Edgar Bennett told me that he used to kind of have this little thing in his glove compartment of his car because he might be driving sometimes and and there would be a moment where a play or an idea or a concept would hit him and so he would pull over to the side of the road and scribble some things down on a napkin or a notebook in his glove compartment and then eventually he would add them to kind of this binder or this this larger, you know, group of of ideas and things that was going to be his offense, you know, if he ever got a chance to be a coordinator or a head coach. Did you find yourself um, stowing things away and, and building ideas and concepts of what the Marvin Lewis defense would eventually look like if and when you did end up getting that chance? Well, yeah, there's no question I did. I mean, even when when uh, uh, Dom left uh, after the 94 season and uh, the opportunity to, to meet and visit with Bill uh, regarding the chance to be the coordinator there in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and he, and, he, and he obviously chose you know Dick LeBeau, which I was very – fine with and and at the time so uh but yeah you always did now ironically when i leave and and go to uh, baltimore eventually that uh you know that was the last time i coached in a 3-4 defense uh so uh because at that point on because of the defensive linemen that coach belichick had left behind there in cleveland uh we were a 4-3 front and been a 4-3 front the rest of my career since then 
How big of a change was that? Was it something that you had to, I mean, obviously you've been a football coach a long time, so you know the differences between a 4-3 and a 3-4, but was it something that you did have to research and look into just to kind of understand it at a, at a level where you'd be seeing it every day? Well, yeah, you know, you, you, uh, we, t- I took similar principles. I, I was able to merge the things that they were doing in terminology, uh, because we retained the defensive line coach there, uh, that coach Belichick had Jacob burning. And so we kept a lot of the front terminology and so forth, uh, with, for the players to be the same and then used the, uh, the terminology in terms, uh, that we used in Pittsburgh for the, for the perimeter part and the coverages. So, uh, we're able to merge the things together and, uh, and, and, and build everything from the ground up. As a, as a coordinator to be coming into a situation with a new team and a new defense, you know, I, I had to imagine that it was, it was probably, um, I don't know if luxury is the right word, but maybe blessing is a better word to, to have uh, a situation where in the very first round of your very first draft, they select a guy named Ray Lewis who can just play a little bit of football, as it turns out. And so what was that like to, to be able to secure a talent like that? And what did you remember about watching tape of him coming out of Miami that year in 96? Well, ironically, I was in Pittsburgh uh, when we left to go to the Combine, and I would always try to preview some of the players before I did that. And I watched about four or five plays of this guy from Miami, shut off the tape, went and got Dick LeBeau, and said, you got to see this guy. And uh, brought Dick in my office, showed Dick. And then when I went over to Indianapolis, you know, there was the formatting of things was a little different than it, it is now. But so during the weigh-in part as he was waiting on the wall, I went over and he would always try and get phone numbers and so forth from the guys. Well, when I got to Ray, I introduced myself and told him I was the linebacker coach of the Steelers. And uh, he was a hell of a player, and I just wanted to wish him the best of luck in his career, uh, you know, because uh, I knew I would never get close to him uh, at that point. So, <laughs> And ironically, two weeks later, whatever it was, 10 days later, I was – uh, you know, now on the way to Cleveland by way, you know, Baltimore by way of Cleveland uh, to be the coordinator, and we drafted Ray with the 26th pick. Was that so, a, was that a situation uh, where you're just hoping he's there at 26? Well, there's no question we hoped that he was there, and uh, you know, I always teased Michael Barrow and Jesse Armstead led me to believe that Ray Lewis could be as good as he was uh, because early on when I was an NFL coach and evaluating those guys, I probably thought. Uh, I graded them probably a little lower than I should have, and they became great pros. Uh, so when I saw Ray coming out of the same system, I knew undoubtedly uh, that, that he would be a fine NFL player. One of the things that media members and, and fans talk about a lot is is the relationship between an offensive coordinator or head coach, whoever's calling the plays on the offensive side, and the quarterback, and how in sync they have to be. I was wondering if you could provide maybe some perspective of, of what the relationship is like between a defensive coordinator or a defensive head coach, if he's calling the plays, and the middle backer, or whoever's wearing the green dot in the headset and doing the communication. What, How important is that, and in what ways did you and Ray need to make sure that you were always on the same page well it, it is really important and that's probably one of the things that uh you know just makes you makes me smile all the time and i would uh, talk to people out it's just how smart uh ray lewis was as a football player he wasted no steps and uh and he was able to get to the ball you know ray didn't run uh fast coming out of university of miami but when he put on the pads and played on sundays he played just as fast and uh, as he would in the 40s so 
that was one of the best things about Ray Lewis and how smart he was getting himself aligned and understanding. And we spent a lot of time just talking about that. I remember him coming in one day to my office and said he wanted to learn the game like a coach. And, and he meant it, and he did that. And anybody that coached Ray after that will tell you that, that how he soaked everything up and was able to go out there on that field and, and go out and execute it that way and was fortunate to be around Ray and then had already been around Rod Woodson, who we brought to, to Baltimore uh, in 97 uh, to be, you know, or I guess it was 98, 97, and uh, who was just like Ray and, and, and helped Ray grow and, uh, and, and made it, you know, Rod was able to uh, let Ray know it was okay to be special because Rod was special, and he was able to reinforce that to Ray, that it was okay to be a, a cut above everyone else. And, uh, and so guys like Rod Woodson, later on Shannon Sharp, uh, those guys again helped Ray grow into the player and the man that he became. The uh, the growth in Baltimore was was actually you know in terms of wins it was a, a pretty steady increase over time but it took you guys four to five years to really become you know that Super Bowl caliber team you know you guys go four and twelve six and nine six and ten eight and eight and then boom in that two thousand season everything kind of comes together perfectly by this point Brian Billick has come in to be the head coach you stayed on with the new staff obviously as defensive coordinator you kind of built the staff there again with guys that were going to go on to be head coaches themselves with Rex Ryan and Jack Del Rio and you know it was a really really talented staff there and so I'm curious how did you sort of see the defense and the organization build over your time in Baltimore kind of ultimately coming to that precipice there of the two thousand season which ended up being historic well you know it was kind of like the zenith you know we kind of built it from the ashes and uh uh you know those players who deserve the credit the guys that were there like the rob burnett you mentioned ray and so forth that were there from the from the beginning the onset of things when the team moved so uh, but but we did it was time after time you know we got better as time went on and really did a good job of building uh, the guys from the ground up and then when uh, Brian actually became the head coach and, and actually rehired me as coordinator and, and really uh, taught me how to be more efficient and effective in my own job and then challenged the players to be the very, very best. Uh, you know, I can remember him telling me on a, you know, we had lost a game and I remember talking to him after the game and I was frustrated and he said, let me try some. So he came in and said, and he said, you know, you guys can keep sending four or five guys to the Pro Bowl and we can keep winning five or six games or uh, you can all do it right all the time and we can win a lot of games. And uh, maybe all of you will go to the Pro Bowl. And, uh, you know, and it was good coming from someone who had, uh, we had played the Vikings the year before when Brian was there. And so uh, his observation of them, uh, that they would just play good enough and then screw it up and lose the game. So, uh, you know, uh, coming from a, a different voice was great. Yeah, and by the time you get to that 2000 season, you've started adding some really key pieces at different levels of the defense. Of course, you have Ray, you've got Peter Bulware, you've got Sharper, but then you started adding some guys up front like Sam Adams and Tony Siragusa. You get Chris McAllister, who I know, talking to DB's coaches over the years, people have spoken very highly of him and his ability to press in certain situations and some of the things that he could do. So you come into that 2000 season again, coming off a year where you go 8-8, eight and eight, 
Did you have any idea that that was about to be arguably the best defense in NFL history? Well, we really th- thought we had made a lot of strides, and uh, we really spent that off season and studied uh, who were the people at the top of the the, the uh, NFL charts. And we, I think, we had given up twenty six touchdowns in ninety nine, and uh, and we were giving up certain things. So we kind of we, we 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 copied and stole uh, from the Bucks, and we took how they played a certain coverage in the red zone, and and that really was the difference in I think our season and why we became such an effective. Uh, football team on defense there but uh, again the, the the players they they absorbed it they they uh, they really did understand it they were so doggone smart with Saragusa and the other guy Dwayne Starks we drafted in 98 Chris in 99 which enabled us to move Rod Woodson to safety and uh, we just really had a lot of uh, smart players at key positions uh, who really understood the opponent when we went out on the field all the time you know, the, the numbers that season, I'm sure people have told them to you and recited them a, a thousand times. But for those who don't know, give up the fewest points in NFL history that year in a 16-game season with 165 to eclipse the 86 Bears, not just by a little bit, but by 22 points, which is, you know, astounding. The fewest rushing yards ever with 970 and 49 turnovers forced that season. Three shutouts in the first five games alone. Um, I guess, you know, in a in a in a sport where so much is predicated on staying level-headed week to week and coaches say all the time don't get too high with the highs don't get too low with the lows i mean what was it like though to go week to week knowing that teams just basically couldn't score on you in any way i mean was that like was the confidence at an all-time high for your players well our guys were very very confident and they took offense if the team did score uh, and uh, they were very prideful of that, and uh, and it actually became such a, a a kind of a game for Shannon Sharp all the time, and he uh, spoke a lot about it on the other side. But uh, but our guys were prideful; they were so smart. They be, they took pride in not letting the other team score. And, and during that season, you know, we went through the uh, five game stretch where we didn't score a touchdown on offense, and. Uh, we won three of those games, and the only thing I could challenge our guys to do is, is the other team was keeping us from uh, scoring a touchdown, so we needed to do better if we wanted to win, and uh, and they took that challenge. So, um, you know, they were very, very good at it. There was a book written about the 2011 Jets season where a writer had behind-the-scenes access to the entire year when, when Rex Ryan was head coach there. And, and those defenses were you know very, very good in their own right. And the reason I bring it up is because those seasons were when the Jets really struggled on offense, but their defense kind of willed them almost to back-to-back AFC title games. And so there were passages in that book where some of the defensive coaches or defensive players talked about how uneven some of the training camp practices were or some of the practices during the regular season because the offense just lagged behind in certain areas and and simply couldn't get a lot done against the defense and so there were times where coaches and players often you know felt bad sometimes for guys on the other side because they were just getting frustrated you know being stymied every single day in practice what was it like for your defense to go against an offense that did have its challenges that season and and was it very one-sided in practice at times well, I don't know that it was. I, I, I thought that our guys on, on offense, the one thing they did is they were able to run the football effectively uh, with Ben Coates and Sam Gass. We added some guys, some pros, that really uh, helped us do things and make first downs. And, and to the credit of the offense, they didn't turn the ball over and put us in 
uh, perilous situations all the time in games. They maybe didn't score as much as they wanted all the time, but they were able to run the football effectively with Jamal Lewis and Priest uh, Holmes and, uh, and, and score when we needed to. And uh, so, uh, you know, I don't remember that it was uh, lopsided and, and part of the football team is we don't play those guys with the same color helmets. Right. Uh, we got to get ready to play the opponents. Now the the playoff run I think was was truly spectacular because in you know the span of three four games there you allow twenty three points one offensive touchdown and an opposing passer rating of thirty three point four which to me is is almost unfathomable now considering how much of a passing league it's become in the in the twenty years since that game and it's crazy to think that that was twenty years ago but going into that Super Bowl against the Giants you'd been in the Super Bowl before you'd been on the wrong end unfortunately what were you feeling this time you know both in terms of your your confidence level as a group and then also just as a coach being able to go through it the second time did you feel anything different the second time around well, I really felt like our guys had a great, uh, really prepared well uh, all the time, like I said, for the opponents. And uh, and they were very, very confident. And by the time we got to Tampa, we had been driving on a bus to go downtown in Baltimore and practice because our practice fields were frozen out at the facility. And so when we got to Florida with the warm weather and everything, we, you know, Brian and Brian saying, we're going to have to cut things back and slow these guys down before they kill, kill one another. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I you know, I, I just can't imagine, you know, going up against a defense like that. Again, I'm going to reference that that Super Bowl book and and I think, you know, this is maybe one of the better compliments I've heard. There was a linebacker for the Giants, Michael Barrow, and he was quoted, you know, years after that game saying, "Quote, normally you sit on the bench and focus on yourself, but we were up on the sideline because we wanted to see what their defense was doing." I'm telling you, it's not like people were open. They basically just weren't threatened by our guys. And so to have an opposing defense, you know, basically not spend the amount of time that it normally would preparing on the sideline to watch your guys um you know that's that's a pretty high level of respect yeah it, it is i mean our, our you know our, our guys were prepared and they and they played very very well and they went out and executed it there was a quote from from another guy. Um, you know, I think it was uh, I think it was maybe Dwayne Starks. I don't have it quite in front of me, but one of your players had said that after um, after the first couple of series, they knew the Giants weren't going to score or weren't going to score nearly enough to make it happen. When did you get an idea? I mean, I know coaches worry until the clock officially says zero, but did you have an idea that that, that game was yours pretty quickly? Yeah, you know, I mean, Dwayne intercepts the ball and takes it back for a touchdown, and uh, you know, he he. You know, they ran the play, the formation, the setup, just like we had practiced. And, and uh, you know, he winked at Rod and, and, and signaled Rod that he was going to jump inside and make sure Rod was over the top. So uh, those things, you know, he did, a you know, a great job with that play. And that's how they played, you know, the entire game. Yeah, it was it was a remarkable win in terms of, you know, just how lopsided it was. 34-7, you get your first ring for a guy being so young and 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 then, you know, getting a chance to win a Super Bowl at such a young age. How did it feel? Well, it was great. As I said earlier, that was a great feeling. Uh it's way different than when you don't win and uh, uh you know, it was a, a a great time because of where we had come from and and those guys, the, the administration like Ozzy and so forth and the scouting staff that had been there through everything from Mr. Modell uh, to win and how much that meant to him and his family, uh, it was tremendous. 
And then soon enough, you know, after one season in, in Washington, you have the opportunity to become a head coach for the first time. I was reading an article on Sports Illustrated that said, you know, prior to the 2003 season, you interviewed with the Bills, Bengals, Panthers, Bucks, and Browns, and then also had interest from a couple of college programs, California and Michigan State. Uh, how hectic was that, you know, sort of being the bell of the ball going into that 2003 season and just interviewing left, right, and center because of how well your defenses had performed? Yeah, you know, I was, you know, so fortunate uh, to, to have that opportunity. And, uh, you know, some of the times I think, you know, uh, when we get into those opportunities, it's it's a two-way street on those uh, uh, interviewing for those opportunities. So, but I, I was fortunate that uh, Cincinnati worked out the way it did and uh, to be there for so long with uh, Mike and his family and, uh, you know, just didn't get, uh, you know, you're, you're hired to go win a championship. We never got that done. What was your approach to interviewing for a head coach? Did you feel like you had, um, did you feel like you had a, you know, a, a big dossier that you could kind of put down on the desk and say, okay, this is this is the Marvin Lewis philosophy for running a team? Well, yeah, I mean, I think over time, I think Brian really helped me uh, kind of prepare for that. Uh, even after the '99 season, I, I interviewed with with Mr. Kraft and, and Jonathan Kraft up in New England before Bill got the job, and I think from that point on it became something I was more serious about that I knew about that I really didn't even think about, hadn't thought about beforehand. And, uh, so, uh, you know, that's the thing that was great. And, uh, uh, you know, I felt that way, but I also thought I wanted to go someplace, um, that, that number one, that the coaches would be comfortable and they wouldn't be always on the phone uh, looking for their next job that they, their families and everybody could could flourish yeah and certainly you know with the longevity that you had in Cincinnati that that ended up being true and and I was curious when when you started putting together a staff over the course of your career whether it was when you were the DC in Baltimore you know like I mentioned having guys like Rex Ryan and Jack Del Rio and I even neglected to mention Mike Smith who went on to become a head coach but you kind of had a knack for finding guys that you know certainly developed into uh, tremendous head coaches and so how um I guess how did you try and build a staff? What were the characteristics you were looking for, and why do you think so many of your guys went on to have head coaching opportunities? Well, I, I think, you know, Brian, you know, actually kind of put, I had wanted to hire, ironically, Jack uh, as a player <laughs> with uh, for, to help, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, with with Ray, when to help mentor Ray. So it was ironic when, when Brian got the job and, uh, and then he hired, uh, um, touring, uh, you know, he hired, uh, Ray or, uh, Jack. So it was very fortunate that way. What was it like to come into a situation where you're a head coach for the first time and you also have the number one overall pick? What's it like to get ready for the draft <laughs> in that scenario? Well, obviously that's not what you hope for. <laughs> right. But, uh, the 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 thing that was we we were so fortunate is when we had the the number one pick there was a number one pick available and uh, well, that was the exciting part that uh, uh, literally uh, the guys that kind of we came down deciding between between Carson Palmer, Byron Leftwich and Terrence Newman and they all had great careers so uh, you know it was fortunate you know a lot of times people have a number one pick and not number one pick player they're available. And, uh, you know, we felt there was, and, uh, 
and uh, Carson visited the weekend before the draft, and I can remember walking. We had had a mini camp, so I could see the team. And uh, after the first practice on Saturday, Friday, then Saturday, we were walking across the field. I told Carson, you know, you're going to be our pick. You're going to be our choice. And uh, so uh, at that point, uh, they began to be the whole negotiation process, and we literally got Carson signed. Uh, I think Monday or Tuesday, uh, I guess the draft started then on Saturday. So uh, got him signed the, the weekend prior or the, the follow, during the next week prior to the draft. So got it, got it ended up getting done. What, uh, what was it about his game, you know, that you thought constituted a number one pick? And then what did he prove to validate that during his time with you in Cincinnati? Well, he, 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 uh, he had just, you know, it's so, you know, Carson probably threw the ball, I don't know, three to 400 times there at SC his last year, where now some of these guys throw that many passes in five games and uh, six games. So, you know, you sit there and you watch every throw that he made over his last couple seasons and uh, all the things that he did. He was big, strong, athletic, uh, smart. Uh, he worked at it. He had a great demeanor. He really, uh, you know, being around him, he he wasn't he was almost like he wasn't from Southern California. He he really had a lot of substance to him, and uh, that was the thing that was so impressive about him. Uh, he was engaged at the time. He and Shayla got married right after the fact, and uh, just everything about Carson. Uh, he was the kind of guy that, that you want to build a football team around. How did you find yourself sort of splitting your time in, in you know, this, this first run at, at being a head coach? Did you find yourself gravitating toward defense, which was your bread and butter, or did you try and compensate by spending more time with the offense, or did you kind of, you know, see how it went week to week? <laughs> you know, I always felt like I could kind of understand what the defense was doing, uh, but so I tried to spend more time literally with, with the offense to try to learn that as much as I could. Um and then I think by the second year, I was back on defense more. So, um, but, but initially with, with the offense, literally. And, and as you're going through that and, you, and you're not necessarily, you know, the guy where you're in 100% of the meetings and everything, did you, are you the type of person where you would be um, anxious or nervous about, you know, not being able to be there all the time? Well, I, I really, I think I'm more the person and, and you know, we touched upon it. I've tried to put coaches in place that I really feel that they have the opportunity to continue to, to, to grow and mature. And I give them the opportunity to coach and uh, you know, I'm going to be there and I'm going to reinforce things for them. I want to know, and I want them, I want the players to know that I know what they're supposed to do. And that's really how I tried to go about it, that I couldn't do my job from sitting at my desk upstairs. I had to do my job downstairs uh, with the players and in the meeting rooms and so forth all the time. Two guys that you hired that had a lot of success for you, and then also went on to have success, and you know still are having success on their own, were Leslie Frazier and Mike Zimmer. And so I'm curious, what were the qualities that attracted you to those two guys, and and what makes them successful defensive coaches in this league? Well, I think both guys have, uh, you know, really understand the fund- fundamentals of what they want, and uh, they're both fundamentally sound. Uh, they're smart. Uh, they work real hard at their job, and they're able to help communicate to the players. And, uh, you know, the players can go out and execute the things they want to see them do, play after play. 
when when you guys started having the success that you did there, you know, going to the playoffs, the you know, for five straight years, when when Andy comes in, and also you know, going to the playoffs with Carson there, um, I guess what was it like to see the city kind of rejuvenated after a stretch of time where they hadn't necessarily had success? You know, I was reading a stat that said of the the seven times that that you went to the playoffs, that was as many as the organization had in the prior thirty five seasons combined. So being in the city and being around the people, did you get the sense that it was reinvigorated? Invigorated? Well, there's no question it was in 05 when we, when we you know, uh, won the division and uh, got the opportunity to go to the playoffs. That it was just a, a huge deal and to host the playoff game at home uh, in 05 like we did. And uh, but yeah, it was it was huge. And uh, you know, the the city of Cincinnati is deserved an opportunity to do that. How did um, how did the, the 2009 season unfold in, in, in your eyes, and, and what did it mean to you to win AP Coach of the Year that season? Well, I think it was, you know, after 05, then we kind of, uh, 6 and 7, we kind of went back to, to average and then really dropped off a little bit that in, in 08 and didn't get off to a very good start. Uh, Carson got hurt, and so I, I wasn't smart enough to, to change everything we're doing when Ryan Fitzpatrick was our quarterback. That's one of the things you learn in hindsight. We, we just kept thinking Carson was going to come back. Carson was going to come back. And and uh, we should have just changed everything to, to utilize Ryan's skills better. But uh, so in 09, uh, we really made a re kind of a reconstituted effort to run the football and play great defense. And, uh, and our guys really, you know, accepted that challenge and did a great job of doing that uh, with said Benson. There there was a lot of, you know, off the field things that went on that season that you navigated and guided the team through from, you know, some personal tragedies to just, you know, some natural disaster events that went on. And, and I guess, can you give, you know, listeners an idea of what it's like to be, you know, a guy that certainly is focused on winning every Sunday, but, you know, it's easy to forget that there are people in that building and, and that these athletes that make millions of dollars, they're, they're dealing with some of the same feelings and emotions that, that all of us deal with in, in difficult times. So what is the balancing act like of, of being there for your players and your coaches as, as a human and as a friend and, and then also, you know, making sure that you're still going out there X's and O's wise to, to do everything you can to win every Sunday? Yeah, it is. You know, you, you do, you go through those things and, uh, uh, you know, we, we went through, uh, we, we lose a very, you know, a heartbreaking game, the first game of the season to Denver. We come back and win at Pittsburgh or win against Pittsburgh and so forth. And then, unfortunately, uh, Mike Zimmer's wife, Vicky passes away uh, very suddenly. And we have to deal with that tragedy on our way to play Baltimore and uh, on the road and uh, come back. And uh, Mike has Vicky's funeral on Tuesday after the game and uh, the win versus Baltimore. And later in the season, Chris Henry, uh, we put him on IR, and unfortunately he's killed in a tragic accident. And uh, uh, so the next thing you know, we're, we're taking the football team on a, on a Tuesday to New Orleans uh, for his funeral. So uh, we went through a lot of ups and downs uh, that season and were able to, to win the division again and uh, – but our guys just really kind of just, you know, grew together and were very resourceful and kind of relied on each other. And uh, and that's what football teams are, are, are good. We just, but by the time we got into the playoffs there at the end, we were a little bit beat up and, and sore and tired and uh, didn't fare very well against the Jets playing them two weeks in a row. 
you know, in a season like that, it, it certainly wasn't a Super Bowl victory, but it was a successful year. You mentioned there's a division title, there's a playoff experience, uh, excuse me, a playoff, a playoff berth, and and all those types of things. Do you do you find a year like that where you know the team rallies around itself and comes together and fights through all different kinds of adversity? Is that still a rewarding season and a rewarding feeling for a coach and a group of guys? Well, I think you know you 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 really have to relish, I think, every opportunity you do to win games. And when you have success, you really, uh, you know, you, you can't be shortchange it because it is hard. And, uh, you know, not everyone every year makes the playoffs. And certainly, uh, I think we went undefeated in the division that year, which was uh, hadn't been done, I think, in the AFC North at that point. And so that was a big thing. And uh, just so some of the things accomplished that year and, uh, uh, to come back and build back and and then deal with the inner tragedies that we have and that, that we had to deal with that season. I understand it's it's one of those things where sometimes you know the the Super Bowl is is always the ultimate goal, but sometimes there's other things that that constitute success along the way. Um, one of the things I've been doing on this podcast, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, is I've been asking coaches about maybe two or three of the the real elite guys that they had an opportunity to coach over the years, and 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 asking them to sort of expand upon a little bit about what made that guy special beyond the stats and beyond what we saw on television. And the first guy I want to ask you about is is Chad Johnson or Chad Ochocinco because I saw a quote about a week and a half ago from Darrell Rivas saying that he thinks Chad Johnson had the best footwork of any receiver that he ever played against. And so I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about what made Chad a special and elite level player. Well, I think, you know, Chad had tremendous quickness, his ability to get in and out of breaks and cuts, and then his catch radius was just tremendous. And that way it made him such an effective player. And he and you know he was fortunate enough, whether it be John Kitten and later on Carson, uh, that had such a big arm that he could go get those footballs when that ball was in the air. Uh, there was probably no one faster than on the field than, than Chad Johnson when that ball was in the air. What was it like to kind of manage you know some of the things that go along with a, a big personality wide receiver? Well, you know those things came later in his career, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, the thing that I always tried to explain to him that, you know, your your personality is what people love. So, and you earn that by how you do it, go about it on the field and don't let these other things get in the way of, of the type of person and player that you really are. So, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, from Oh three, uh, when he made the pro bowl for the first time and, and, and those kind of things and, and telling him, you know, uh, and, and watching him grow and develop as a player was, was tremendous. You know, one of the guys that, that gets a lot of attention now because of the success he's had at this particular position is, is Aaron Donald. But i, I got to ask you about Geno Atkins because I remember covering the Packers in a game where they were getting ready to play your Bengals. And, and you know, Aaron was talking about Aaron Rodgers, about just how good of a player Geno was and what he can do to disrupt the game. And so for those kind of undersized defensive tackles, was, was Geno, you know, about as good as it gets at that position? Yeah, Gino, you know, that year in the draft, the, the 2010 draft, you know, uh, Sue and McCoy uh, were the guys at the top of the draft, and we really felt like Gino, for us, was the best fit after those guys to come in and do the things we wanted to do. And uh, as a young player early on, as a rookie, he really showed that. And, uh, uh, you know, we brought him in in passing situations and as a wave player, and he really earned those opportunities. And then you know, we, we reconstituted our line moving forward after that 
to to make him the full time player, and he's never disappointed. And uh, uh, he's an extremely hard worker. He's so quiet and everything. And so anytime Gino would ever come to me and have something to say, I had to listen because he's like yeah, fun, you know, because he never says much about it. In fact, none of the Georgia guys talk very much. Yeah, it's a situation where when when that guy finally speaks up, you know it's important, so you got to listen. I've I've heard those kinds of descriptions before. And then uh, the last question I have is is who's a guy that you you coached? Doesn't have to be a star player. Doesn't even have to be one of the better contributors, but somebody who you really enjoyed having the opportunity to be around, whether because of work ethic or traits or or what they offered to a team. Any kind of unsung guys that you've always really valued in your career? Well, gosh, I. <laughs> I, I just think so many. I mean, I, my, my term for those guys were kind of nuts and bolts guys, you know, that, that they make your football team better day in and day out. And, and gosh, I, I coached a slew of them. And like Jerry Osaski, who's now coaching linebackers in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, uh, just guys that never really achieved the level of Pro Bowl players, but were always there. Reggie Kelly's was our tight end. And, in Cincinnati that we, we got and just made our football team tough all the time. And so a guy that, that, that got injured, that never got to coach as long and would have had a great career, David Pollock, you know, we re- I really felt like he was going to be a special player and, uh, and got injured. And, uh, and obviously he's done a great job with his career since football, since playing football with, with college football and, and what he's done. But David probably might, you know, one of my my all-time favorites and and just as a kid and a young man you you just you know you you hope your 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 son can grow up and be like him that's pretty awesome. I didn't I didn't know that about David. You know, obviously I knew he was a, you know, a special player before the injuries, but when you hear a little bit about, you know, the the people and the work ethic and the things that go into it, it kind of gives you a different appreciation when you when you see those guys now. So, Marvin, I really appreciate you taking so much time to chat with me. This was uh this was a lot of fun and, you know, obviously we don't know what the season is going to look like in the fall, but hopefully you guys can continue to build what you have going out there at uh, at ASU with with Herm and the guys and uh, best of luck this upcoming year. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. So there you have it, a conversation with former Cincinnati Bengals head coach Marvin Lewis, now the co-defensive coordinator at Arizona State. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. I thank all of you for sticking around and listening. As always, you can find episodes of this show available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. And as always, if you're listening on an Apple device, please feel free to leave a comment, leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show. I read them all, I see them all, and uh, I really do appreciate the positive feedback. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.